Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. If you are just tuning in, we encourage you to go back and listen from episode one. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Last time on Direct Appeal, we brought you up to date on Melanie's case. We really appreciate your patience now while we follow up on tips and conduct additional interviews for our final episodes. In the meantime, we give you the second Q&A with Melanie. Before we get to the second Q&A, though, we also have a couple of announcements. This week, Amy and I will be on Dialogue with Rebecca Sebastian. That's D-I-E, Dialogue. We'll be talking about Melanie's case, but we'll also be talking about other criminal justice system issues, crime trivia, and more. We had a lot of fun with Rebecca, and we appreciated her having us on the show. We hope you'll check us out. Amy and I have also been invited to speak at American Crime Fest this year in Wildwood, New Jersey at the Wildwood Convention Center the weekend of November 8th. Tickets for that event are on sale now. And for those of you who had to miss CrimeCon, this may be your chance to get your true crime fix. We're super excited and we look forward to seeing lots of you there. Thanks. All right, let's get going. First question. Okay, Melanie, you said you looked at furniture stores in Delaware and made a list of stores. Did you not look at what times those stores were open, even though you had done so much other research? I actually had a list, and I did have some times next to a couple of them. I probably overestimated the amount of time it would take to get there um, as well. But, yes, some of them were 10 o'clock opens. A couple were 9 o'clock opens. So, yes, I did. I did have those times. And what time did you say you got there around? Oh, what time did I get there about? I'm trying to remember what time I left the house. I think I probably got there, I want to say like 8.45. I could be wrong on that. It was before anything opened, though, but not by, not by a time. Okay. If you think Bill was killed in Virginia, how did the killers manage to put his remains in your suitcases? Okay, well, the morning of the fight... When Bill left, he, I was locked in the bathroom, so I honestly did not see what he took, but I did tell the family court when I was getting the TRO, he was inside, he was out, upstairs, downstairs. You know, I imagined packing a couple of bags. I didn't know what bags he took. Um, and come to find out later when the officers asked me, does this look like your luggage? I mean, we rarely went anywhere. So I was kind of like, I don't know, maybe... And then later on, looking at it and then going down in my basement, seeing that, you know, luggage is gone. Yeah, that's, um, so he took that luggage with him, essentially, when he left. He left with that, and, you know, whatever he had put in it, I couldn't say exactly, but he left with those bags. Okay. It would have been in his car and presumably with him at that point. Okay. Um, all right, next question. If your husband was so abusive, in quotes, why would you get him a gun? You know, and it's, it's a valid question. It's absolutely a valid question. When you are in a situation um, like that, you know, the thing is, first of all, at that point, the physical abuse is not, you know, uh, 
and every day. This is not a tangible thing going on. He's not beating the crap out of me every night when I go home. Mental and emotional abuse is, is far less easy to sort of quantify um, and even qualify sometimes. So when you get to a point that you'll get him anything he wants just to stop the fight, just to stop the complaint, you know, in retrospect, is it one of the dumbest things I have ever done? Is it one of my biggest regrets? Absolutely. But when he got going, I would have loaded that gun and put it in his hand and pointed it at me if it would get him to stop. And I can't describe it any other way. If anybody has never been in that situation, it, it's it's really, it is, it's counterintuitive and it's difficult to make it sound like, you know, it's something that a reasonable person would do. But that kind of stuff doesn't start overnight. It's insidious. It starts over years and years. And, you know, at, at one point or another, for as much as he's doing wrong, you know, I'm, I'm allowing it. And essentially the way I chose to live my life at that point, my lie at that point, honestly, was the best way I could cope with what was mental and emotional abuse by him, but was also, I have to be completely fair and retrospect to cry for help from him also. So that's something I live with every day. But the answer quite simply and not to, you know, to be crass or, you know, to sound rough with it was, was to shut him up, was to get what he wanted and get him to stop arguing. Okay. What do you mean a cry for help? That's just my question. Well, looking at it now, Clearly, his life, you know, and when I say his life, you know, you think his life and my life are the same. We were both living separate lives. So it was like mine, his, and ours. His life, clearly, there was shit going on that I have no idea was going on. Clearly, stuff was spiraling out of control for him. So at that point, whether he's, whether he's taking substances, whether he's not, his behavior is, erratic, whether he knows he's, you know, he's not physically saying, help me, but clearly his behavior is indicative of somebody who does, who needs help. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Um, Did the police ever investigate the hotel where Bill's car was found or the hotel where you said you found his car? Uh, The hotel where his car was found they really didn't investigate with the exception of the parking lot tapes. So the surveillance, I guess because no room was rented in his name, and they did testify to that, that there was no room rented in his name. And the same of, you know, basically any hotel. There was no reservation anywhere in his name. So it's, well, what room do you really investigate? Um, records were sought there, though, and records, specifically from the surveillance camera, although a number of days went missing, the surveillance uh, camera that was essentially pointed at where the car was parked was requested and reviewed. Beyond that, they didn't. I know they interviewed the manager from the Red Roof Inn, which is where I had stayed up in Middlesex County while this was going on. I know that they um, did some stuff there. Exactly what, I don't know. I don't have any reports saying that, like, you know, they searched a room or anything, but they did... Um, they did investigate there as well. Okay. Thank you. A follow-up to that from someone else was, what was the issue with the missing surveillance from the hotel parking lot? That's an excellent um, question. And the Virginia Beach detective was the one um, on the stand who spoke to it. 
he said that he reviewed the whole tape, that he didn't see any indication of the car being moved, but then by the time he got on the stand, it was an old system, and they had lost a number of days of surveillance. So they have it being parked, and then they basically lose it after that. They know that the tow that the towing company came on, I forget what day it was, and that they towed it from there. The issue with that becomes that spot on the surveillance where I've parked the car is a very different spot than where the tow truck operator insists, despite police trying to tell him, oh, you're sure it wasn't over here? He insists it was towed from a different spot. And how many uh, days was uh, missing from the the surveillance footage, to your knowledge? Seven. I want to say seven. It was a number. It wasn't like a day. It was like seven days. Okay. Thank you. Um, Okay. How many times were Bill's headlights stolen? Was that from home or work? And did you find it odd that this kept happening? Um, It was one, two, three... I want to say four times, possibly five. I can name three, like, place and time off the top of my head. Uh, it was work and it was home. And, frankly, it happened when the car was parked at my job once also. Um, oh. So it, I did absolutely find it strange that it kept happening. Later, you know, looking it up online, it turns out that it was a thing, that Maxima Headlights had, I don't know, some kind of chip or something in them that was desirable to, to see and that that became something that happened um, over and over again. My thing was, let's get a different freaking car. Um, because why are we going to just do this over and over? When you be- can begin to critique the skill of the thief based on how much damage is done to your hood, because you, now you, you know the way they have to get them out, that, you know, I don't know, he would not let go of that car. And it was, I mean, it was a nice car, but it wasn't, it was a car. Right. You know, why are we doing this? And the follow-up to that question is, um, was this a coincidence or was this something that you believe Bill had orchestrated? I have thought of that many times. I don't have anything conclusive. Again, it's completely speculative on my part, but the more that we go back and the more that we learn, it seems like a lot less a lot fewer things are sort of random about what was happening at the time. Could he have done something like this, been orchestrating this? Absolutely. Do I have any proof to indicate that? No, I don't. To be completely even-handed, it would just be me speculating. Okay, fair enough. Um, All right, let's see. Melanie, do you think the fact that you are such a smart and intelligent woman somehow ended up being used against you? That's... um. That's a good question. I, I kind of laugh. I'm like, yeah, I'm a genius. Um, <laughs> I mean, really. You know, I, I don't, I think it would have been an asset had I testified. If I had testified and I had been able to explain myself, I mean, the jury could have elected to believe me or not believe me, but there would have been an, an understanding at least as opposed to this, huge gap and you know you do you have you know they're constantly saying oh she's a smart defendant she's a smart defendant and people watch tv whether they should evaluate it this way or they don't if if a defendant doesn't take the stand particularly one who is intelligent 
the jury and people in general assume that there has to be a reason why, which would be self-incrimination. So, you know, and again, no juror has ever spoken. So I don't know that that's in fact what they thought. Well, I have no idea what they thought at all, other than ultimately that I was guilty. But um, I think that it's something that uh, that could have been an asset and unfortunately probably did um, end up working against me, at least indirectly. Okay. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, all right, next question. You seem like you had a nice life before. What was it like when you were first sentenced to prison? How did you adapt, and what do you what is life like for you now in prison? Um, and it's funny, Megan, because I've I've said this to you. In some ways, prison is not nearly as bad as people think it is, and in some ways, it is so much worse than you could ever possibly describe or imagine. This is not orange; is the new black. Okay, it's you're, it's a very difficult assimilation. I will say that when I came um, from the county to here, the administrator at the time at EMCF was very careful with me where they put me, they didn't put me in reception with, you know, 65 of my closest friends in general population. They they sort of eased me into it. They, they did well by me in that. I, you had 60 seconds remaining. Wow, already? Okay. I was very... Um, I was very grateful for that. Um, you know, I'm I'm in I'm in the maximum compound. Uh, I'm on a maximum wing with another, you know, bunch of ladies that, for the most part, um, I'll say are similarly sentenced. So we're fortunate in that that community kind of provides a a lot of support to one another because we're going through a unique set of issues. Whether you have resolved yourself to the fact that you're never leaving or you're fighting for your freedom, it's a unique set of issues than, say, somebody who's got a five-year sentence. So I'm fortunate in that aspect. Um, I try to stay as busy as I can. Um, I volunteer crocheting prayer shawls, actually, and um, which is something I never thought I would do in a million years, crochet. And I, uh, I teach as well and help girls uh, with their GED. So, I mean, that part of it is fulfilling. Is it a difficult assimilation? Absolutely. But you have to, you can't think about your old life. You have to keep a a very fine line between the outside world and and this one, because if you live too much in the outside, um, you, you can't survive in here and vice versa. The the same. So. Okay. All right. Next question. Uh, On a 2020 episode, Melanie said she was notified of Bill's death by the police in a phone conversation in which the police said he was found on different days. This is quite different than what she said on the podcast when she said the notification happened in person and not on the phone and that she didn't know how or or if it was even self-harm. How does Melanie account for these differences? 
the discrepancy comes in that I was notified basically incrementally. So initially, I'm driving home with my children. I get a phone call from my mother. The police were here. They say, you're not in trouble. They need to talk to you. So we all agreed um, that I would drop the children at home, and my dad and I went to the police station. That's where, in fact, I was notified the first time. All I was told is, your husband is deceased. I can't give you any more information. He, um, he was down in Virginia, and those detectives will be contacting you. That's it. So learning additionally, uh, after speaking to Virginia Beach homicide and stuff like that, only later as I went along, did I, because at that point I didn't know. I didn't know if it was self-harm. I didn't know if he drove his car into a wall. I didn't, you know, had he gotten the car back? I, I don't know. So I was left wondering absolutely every possibility under the sun. Then basically Virginia kind of elected to disseminate this in increments, um, if you will. First, it, I was told it was absolutely a homicide, no indication of self-harm or, you know, anything. Definitely foul play. And then subsequent to that, I was informed. And again, this is before Virginia even came to see me, so this is via telephone, um, that he was found basically on a different day. Okay. Thank you. Um, Melanie, had you ever signed Dr. Miller's name before on a script in your capacity as his nurse? Absolutely. It was done commonly at that point in the time, at that time and in the practice. And obviously procedures have changed now. This is a long time ago also. It was, you know, was it good practice? Absolutely not. Was it common for a nurse to scroll a doctor's script on a, you know, on a prescription for something that we were giving? Um, yeah. You know, basically if you needed or wanted something, you know, for instance, the Xanax, um, Dr. Miller himself took care of for me. But in the course of like daily treatment um, with, I, you know, I wouldn't prescribe for myself, signing for myself, in other words. But if I've got six patients that day and he's in the OR, I, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then a follow-up to that one is, did the prosecution ever use those prescriptions? I'm sorry, did the prosecution ever use, yes, those prescriptions you signed to compare to the chloral hydrate prescription? Um, they attempted to draw certain conclusions. Um, in between, and they actually had Dr. Miller testify as to what, you know, his signature was as to, you know, and I think they even asked him at one point, is this the signature that Ms. McGuire uses for you on a, on a completely unrelated um, prescription? And he identified that it was, and essentially their handwriting um, analysts could draw no conclusions. Okay. He could point out similarities, he could point out differences, but he, he said he was not able to draw conclusions based on that. And I'm sorry, what did you say Dr. Miller's response was? Was he able to give an opinion on that? No, well, he basically said, this is Melanie's signature for me, you know, on an unrelated script. And on this one, they said, do you recognize this signature? And he said, no. Okay. That yeah, seems clear. It wasn't my signature, you know, for him. Okay. All right. Did the police ever establish what type of saw they were looking for? Circular, reciprocating, or something else? They, um, the forensic anthropologist testified that they were looking essentially for, um, that there were, there was more than one tool used. They were looking for, they were interested in finding both reciprocating and circular saws based on the, 
I guess the um, the marking that the that the implement had um, had made on his phone. Okay. Did the medical, uh, this is similar, did the medical examiner ever state what type of tool was used to dismember Bill's body? Um, again, because of, you know, with soft tissue, no, because of, I would imagine at that point, the water damage, um, you know, and at the point where where the body is, um, is disarticulated, they... Um, you know, because it's, it's been in the water, it's impossible to discern, you know, what cut the skin. But from the tool marks, again, that were found on the bone, this is essentially what they were um, what they were looking at. Certainly the type of tools they seized from my home, my parents' home, Brad's home, you know, all of which obviously without a match. Right. Um, so I understand that. I think maybe the question here is based on, you know, the, the markings on the bone, did the medical examiner actually state? based on those markings, what type of tool she thought was used? Not that I recall. Again, they deferred to the forensic anthro on that, and, and he was looking specifically, he said, toward reciprocating a circular saws. All right, next question. Was Jim Finn looked at as a suspect before he cooperated with the police? Um, according to him, yes. And I'm going to start this by saying I only know um, certainly what I've read and what he told me along the way. By the time he got around to making the, um, the consensual recordings, he basically said that they were, they were looking at, I don't have a hard time believing they were looking at him. They were looking at every male in my life to find somebody who could possibly fit this bill. And, you know, the police, I don't think a lot of people realize that the police are permitted in the course of an investigation to lie to you. It's called overt tactics. They are allowed to lie. So they can run at Jim and say, we know you did A, B, C, and D. There's proof of this. There's proof of that to see how he reacts. They can also go to him and say, we absolutely know she's guilty. And here's mm -hmm. why. And so if you don't tell us what you know, you become an accessory because you gave her information about getting a gun. So I think he was absolutely looked at whether his, you know, I don't know, ultimately why you would need a non-prosecution agreement at the end of the day if you've done nothing wrong. But, you know, then again, I didn't think I could be convicted of murder if I did nothing wrong either. So, you know, that's something that his attorney probably advised him to get. And, um, you know, it was probably probably wise, all in all, um, looking where I'm at now. But, yeah, I, I believe that he was. How thoroughly, I couldn't say. I know that when there were, for instance, there's some, I don't know if it's a fingerprint or a palm print, that's on the lockbox that is not identified. It's not me. It's not Bill. Um, and they compared it as well. They specifically compared it to Brad and Jim Finn. Um, so I, I would have to lump him in there with that. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. Um, someone else asked us, probably a follow-up to that. Do you know how many suspects were looked at as your accomplice before the prosecution settled on your father? Uh, yeah, I can tell you. Fred, Jim, they basically popped out of the bushes at uh, my friend Celine's husband when he was walking their dog at 6 o'clock one morning. You know, it's the element of, of surprise. Um, Celine's husband, Jim, Brad, you know, they ruled, like, you know, my brother out completely, you know, based on people's location, where they were at that time. You know, there's people that they didn't even... Um, 
entertain. But I'm going to say, you know, they tried to make whatever they could fit by looking at the men in my life. And I would say two of my friends' husbands and then um, Brad and Jim that I know of okay. before my father. So that you know of four. Mm-hmm. Yes, correct. Okay, then there's another they question. They work their way through that and then ultimately settled, um, you know, settled on my dad. And um, another question was, why do you think they chose your dad? Why do you think they chose him as your accomplice in the end? Um, in the end, I think they had an opportunity to because no one else fit, whether by alibi or whether by whatever. It just they, they ruled out those other people. And because my mom and my dad had the kids those first few days, they weren't going anywhere. Like, they were home with the kids. There's no easy pass hits. There's no... You know, my parents' business was literally two minutes down the road from them. So there's no real documentation of, like, communication going back and forth except me calling the house. But they can turn around and say, well, you know, you called the house. You probably talked to your mom. Like, how do you – they basically couldn't prove – we couldn't prove differently. But I should note that a grand jury investigated my father and, and did not indict him. So. Yes. At the end of the day, they basically had absolutely nothing linking him to this. But you, you can't prove a negative either. It's very difficult to turn around and say there's absolutely no way I could have done this. Only in certain instances, you know, can you really rule that out? And I honestly, I think that's why. Additionally, um, there were people I considered to be friends of the family uh, who it turns out in their reports for whatever reason, suggested um, that they look at my, my father. Okay. I'm not quite sure why that would be, but I hope to find out. What was your parents' business? Uh, they, had a, they were partners in a small um, shipping business, kind of like a UPS store, mm. and it was like in a little strip mall, like right down the road from, from where they lived. It was called the Easy Store, and they were partners with like two or three other guys in it, you know, just something that was kind of keeping them occupied um, what was, you know, an easy post-retirement at that point before all of this happened. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Let's see. Would you be willing to make your cell phone records public now that technology has advanced if that help was offered to you? Would I make my, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Would I make my right. cell phone records public if? Yes, I, I'm, it's a complicated, let me see. Would you be willing to make your cell phone records public now that technology has advanced if that help or if that option was offered to you? Absolutely. Absolutely, without hesitation. Without hesitation. That no. would be wonderful. Okay. I mean, my call records, I have no problem. Those are... I'm sure those are in evidence. Those are technically public record, but I'm assuming what the person is asking is, you know, in the event that, say, the technology existed that we could get, you know, the actual tower locations, that would be wonderful. I would do it in a minute. Okay. Along the lines of cell phone records, what was Bill's cell phone call like, log like after he left? Was there any activity after the two phone calls that we have already discussed on the podcast or already heard about? No, not on the phones that we knew him to have. Um, not on, well, the BlackBerry was secured in his trunk, so that was a non-entity. He used that primarily for emails um, anyway. But his own boss testified that he typically carried at least three cell phones around. On the two that we know of that we were able to, um, you know, get call logs on, no. 
Now, it turns out there were numbers that we found in his call. We have 60 seconds remaining. Wow. After the fact, one of which was an answering service for him, but at that point, the account had been closed, and we only found that out when RPI just basically went through his contacts and his phone and just started calling things. So there was clearly other stuff going on here that, that we weren't even aware of. I'm sorry, what was that phone call? You found out there was a phone call to a messaging service made when? No, I'm saying there was a, we located a messaging service that he had that we didn't know of. Oh. You have 30 seconds remaining. Basically during the trial. So my point is if we didn't know about the messaging service, what else didn't we know about in terms of what other phones he had? Again, his boss said easily two or three at any given time. The two that we know of, his Nextel and our personal phone, no, there were no other calls. Okay, thanks. So next question. Melanie, you said that Bill would sometimes leave for a few days while you were while you argued. Did you ever do the same? No, I did not. Okay. No, quick I one. didn't. The only time I was ever away overnight would have been like at a professional conference and those happened maybe once a year. Other than that, absolutely not. Okay. Melanie, you said that you took down your easy pass because you didn't want to you didn't want Bill to see where you were going. Did you put them back and if so when did you put the easy pass back i guess they're saying did you mount it again um honestly by the time no i i didn't uh by the time you know everything kind of came to pass and you know we got the death notification and everything else no i didn't i just they, they were down they stayed down it wasn't even on my it wasn't even in my thinking at that point okay and then a follow-up with that one was um when did you start to worry about the actual Easy Pass charges? Um, when Virginia had asked me about the records, you know, and I sat down and I thought, and I actually pulled up, I don't know if I had the statement, I don't know if it was paper or online at that point. It had to be online, it was too soon. Um, you know, and I looked at the, uh, the dates, I absolutely panicked, absolutely panicked, because now, to my knowledge at that point, you know, the second when I went back down to look for the car, theoretically, he's, he could absolutely be alive at this point. And to this day, we don't know. The 18th, it turns out, that was absolutely a moot point, and I, I needn't have worried about that. But it was after Virginia Beach started asking questions about that. And to clarify, the 18th was actually a third trip you took to Atlantic City, correct? That's correct. I'm saying two after the moving of the car. So, yeah, let me be clear. It was the third total. And on the 18th, it actually, Bill's remains had been discovered already. Correct. Correct. So. Un unbeknownst to me, yes. Okay. Just wanted to clarify that. Um, mm -hmm. Were the fingerprints found on the garbage bags entered into CODIS, which is the combined DNA index system, to your knowledge? They were entered into AFIS. I don't know exactly what the acronym stands for, AFIS. I saw that everywhere. I don't recall seeing CODIS. Um, I don't know if AFIS is some variation on that. Um, so that one I'm not sure on. But again, APHIS, I can definitely say that the, I remember seeing that in a number of the reports. And there was no matches? Nope. No matches other than, um, I think, you know, Bill's print is on something and, you know, like on his sunglasses or, you know, something that's completely non-probative. Uh, non I mean, initially, we were told that there was a palm print on one of the plastic bags that contained the body. And we were told that, we were led to believe that, and then in the middle of trial, one of the police detectives testified, oops, I made a mistake, that was actually on a paper bag that was in the trunk. 
worth like a clear plastic bag or something that was in the trunk. It was like a, an 11th hour, oops, yeah, I just made a mistake. What do you mean you made a mistake? Right. Well, I just made a mistake. And that matched no one, the same way the, uh, the lockbox print matches no one that we're aware of. All right, Melanie, to clarify a point from your last Q&A in which the answer was seemingly not clear, did you have sexual relations with any other man besides Brad Miller while you were married to Bill? The answer to that is no. Um, as I, again, stated last time, I was involved for a brief period of time um, before I even knew Brad uh, with a different physician, and that sort of spanned, um, spanned into my engagement. Um, certainly, but then that individual moved cross-country anyway, so it was, you know, not somebody I could have continued a relationship with if I chose to, and Brad was absolutely the only one. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Melanie, what efforts, if any, did you make to find Bill's murderer, Bill's real murderer? Honestly, we have been, when I say we, I mean my family and I have been in a completely defensive posture from day one. We, very early on, uh, were informed basically via our own attorneys and essentially via the tactics that were being used that I was in fact the suspect. So at that point, any attorney I had told me I was absolutely do and say nothing, that, you know, this was... Basically, first of all, it was the police's job, which, I mean, whatever, that doesn't sit well with me. But at this point now, I'm fighting for my life. So I didn't get to the point where I could sort of expect, you know, righteous indignation and demand answers from people because I was, you know, basically the target from day one. That said, now that I'm sitting here, we're, we're trying to actively investigate um, leads because, again, there are people who think I've absolutely done this and I deserve to be here. There's some people who may not be sure. I'm telling you at the end of the day that regardless of what you think about me, adulteress, whatever, there's a murderer still walking around out there. And, you know, it, it's something that needs to be looked at. Unfortunately, when you have tons of DNA and animal hair and things that you opt not to test, that you literally write on a report, not of evidentiary value, does not compare to the suspects or her families. That's what makes it not of evidentiary value. So these are things, honestly, that I regret we didn't test more, you know, earlier on. And had I not been basically targeted from day one, I would have been looking for answers. But I knew between the investigators and my, my husband's family was made very clear to me that basically they were coming for me. So at that point, you stop looking and you start defending. You, you, I, I didn't even get to the point, honestly. But now we're hoping that that will change, that we'll have the opportunity to pursue that more aggressively. Okay. Do you know if either of Bill's sisters owned a dog at the time of his death? Um, his, he had two elder sisters, the middle sister. Uh, I couldn't say because she's, down in Florida, and honestly, I, I, I can't recall. Um, you know, I hadn't seen her. I certainly, we hadn't been down there to visit or anything. Uh, the eldest sister, I don't remember exactly when um, her dog died, but she did have, she did have a dog. Okay. Um, I mean, many of the people in the situation did, to, to be fair. But again, 
you know, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you exactly when her dog had passed. We did not have a dog at that time. And neither Neither did your parents, correct? My parents, correct, correct. I interrupt you. Will you say that again? My childhood, my childhood, um, my childhood pet had, I remember specifically because my grandfather died the same year. He had died in 2000. So years before, um, you know, my parents lost, again, my childhood pet, and we did not have a dog at that time. Absolutely not. Okay. I think we just got through all the questions. Before we go today, for those of you who are looking for a new true crime podcast, you might check out our friends at Crime Salad, which is a case-by-case podcast hosted by Ashley and Ricky. They release a new episode every Wednesday and do a great job of discussing various murders and disappearance cases. Sometimes it's hard to find the right podcast, but these guys are well-rounded, clear, and they get right to the point.